Hey, good morning. It's been said. It's good to see you. I'm Josh, if I haven't met you, one of the pastors here. Um, it's been said we're going to begin a new message series on the theme of rest and its importance, how to incorporate it into our lives. And to start the series, and before we really even talk about rest, uh, what I'm going to do is set a foundation uh, because. What we're doing through this series is the start of a multi-year project where we're taking this concept called a rule of life and inviting anyone who would like to participate in that with us um, to do so. And so you'll find around you, and we'll, we'll reference those later, you'll find around you, or there's a link online, um, a hard copy of this rule of life. If you're one of the cool kids, you can go to Walmart and get a nice binder to keep it at me too much. My wife cackled, cackled people, <laughs> rolled her eyes at the same time. Anyway, uh, you'll find a digital uh, copy uh, on a link uh, on, in our Facebook description for the, the video here too. So before we jump in, um, I want to read a quote that stuck with me for the last 20 years about what, uh, when I first read it. It's from Richard Foster, on Celebration of Discipline, or the book Celebration of Discipline. This is one of those, this is how he starts the first chapter. It's one of those like, it was the best of times, it was the worst, just something that sticks with you. It's, you know, A.W. Tozer, the most important thing about us, what, what enters our mind when we think about God. It's just like, that's page one, I need to sit with that for a minute. This is Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. The classical disciplines of the spiritual life call us to move beyond surface living into the depths. They invite us to explore the inner caverns of the spiritual realm. They urge us to be the answer to a hollow world. Psalm 42.7 reads, Deep calls to deep. Perhaps somewhere in the subterranean chambers of your life, you have heard the call to deeper, fuller living. You have become weary of frothy experiences and shallow teaching. Every now and then you have caught glimpses, hints of something more than you have known. Inwardly, you long to launch out into the deep. He wrote that in 1978 almost 45 years ago, before the rise of the internet, before you could team up on Fortnite or smash King Koopa, before there was any hope of making a funny dance that might go viral on TikTok. I know I've seen some of you on there. Before you could post endless pictures of all the food that you've eaten, guilty as charged. My social media has been taken over by pictures of my new smoker and what it produces, so there you go. Before some creep could slide into your DMs, before you could be canceled by the Twitter mob for a hot take, before you could be maybe catfished on Twitter for a little Venmo coin, Foster wrote this two years before CNN and the advent of 24-7 news cycles that set the foundation for 24-7 binge-watching on Netflix or Hulu or Paramount Plus or Disney Plus or HBO Plus or any of them pluses or minuses that you have going on in your life. A month ago, we addressed the danger of digital culture. So I'm not going to belabor that here. I will reference that. But 
I wanna point out how Foster's invitation to the subterranean chambers of your life to a deeper, fuller way of being is calling to us. It's calling, it's inviting us if we pay attention to it. Sometimes it's quieter, it's drowned out by the rush of life, the attention economy, trying to grab every bit of spare moments you have. I mean, we had a conversation with my 12-year-old. He's got a phone that's pretty locked down, but he kind of found a way to use an app that we weren't supervising. And I just, so here's the thing about being a pastor's kid is you don't get a lecture, you get a sermon, (laughs) right? And so I sermonized, man. I was like, dude, you don't understand what these devices do to us. You are pitted against MIT and Stanford grads at multi-billion dollar companies that work day and night, that's eat, sleep, and breathe, how to steal every ounce of your attention. That's what they do. Good luck being a 12-year-old and being pitted against that. You don't have the willpower, right? Good luck being a 40-year-old. You don't have the willpower, right? So we, we need to carve out time. We need to carve out rest. We need to carve out something so we can listen to that beck and that call of a deeper, fuller life so it doesn't get drowned out. But it's not just the digital revolution. It's a number of things that are confronting us all at once that beg for a solution. There's the actual pace of life. Check this out. A research project in 1999 compared the pace of life in 31 major cities across the world, basing its analysis on three main indicators. The average walking speed in downtown areas, how quickly postal clerks completed basic tasks, and the accuracy of clocks in public places. That that seems pretty benign, doesn't it? Well, what they found is that the pace of life was faster in economically developed countries, colder climates, because of course you're not trying to stay outdoors too long, and individualistic cultures. People walk faster. They're they're trying to do life at a faster pace, right? In another study released in uh, 2007, they found that around the world, people are walking about 10% faster than they used to. Researchers identified that those who walk quickly are also most likely to speak fast and eat fast. They become impatient when waiting in lines or traffic, and they're more likely to wear a watch. I, I mean, I like fall in every category on that, by the way. I'm not super happy about this, but them's the facts, right? They become impatient. Uh, I already read that. Faster doesn't always equal better. As researchers found correlations between subjects with faster walking speeds and several negative health effects like heart disease. So there's that. Just the pace of life is increasing. Don't you feel that? There's more to do in less amount of time. Then there's this, this our, our anxiety is high. Just our, our national, like corporate anxiety as a culture is high. And we feel that still on a, a micro level. It might start to rear its head as burnout, just the, the lack of, of drive or passion or just kind of wanting uh, to not do or produce or be about anything. But that also gives way to what Adam Grant um, alerted us to just a couple of years ago called languishing. He wrote an article in the New York Times. He said, languishing, and, and don't raise your hand if you feel this, languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. As scientists and physicians work to treat and cure the physical symptoms of long-haul COVID, many people are struggling with the emotional long-haul of the pandemic. It hits some of us 
unprepared as the intense fear and grief of last year faded. Again, this is 2021, referencing 2020. In psychology, we think about mental health on a spectrum from depression to flourishing. Flourishing is the peak of well-being. You have a strong sense of meaning, mastery, and mattering to others. Depression is the valley of ill-being. You feel despondent, drained, and worthless. Languishing is the neglected mental child of mental health. It's the void between depression and flourishing, the absence of well-being. So these three things, not to mention there's a crisis of loneliness, particularly in men. There's um, you know health, physical health that, that we're dealing with. All of this is coming at us fast. It's, it's in fact coming at us so fast, we can hardly identify the problems we face as a culture, let alone start to deal with them and actually give answers and speak to. What does science have? Well, if you, if you track with Richard Foster, it's more gifted or intelligent people. If we just got smarter, we could deal with our issues. Well, how is that working out for us? How are we doing? So my point is this, perhaps instead of keeping up, Instead of downloading the latest app or getting on the latest platform or watching the latest show or trying to solve the latest problem, we may need to slow down and take a step back. I think we need to assess some things in our own lives. And I'm not, I'm not talking about them out there. I'm not talking about the church across town. I'm talking about Mosaic, the, the family and friends of our church. Jesus says this, and I've quoted this, I think a lot. I mean, we should probably memorize this collectively as a church because I just think even though he said it 2,000 years ago, it's such an apt invitation. It identifies the problem and charts a path forward for us. He says this in Matthew 11, 28, and I'm reading from the message, paraphrased by Eugene Peterson. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Maybe it's just not religion. Maybe it's just burned out on life. Are you languishing? He says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. You see, Jesus, there was no unintentional word that Jesus ever spoke. He spoke the very words of the Father, empowered by the Spirit. Every command is a promise of fulfillment. Every invitation is the promise of grace, to actually see it fulfilled. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. So this isn't five days on the beach in Cabo and then oh, back to the grind. It's, it's real work of the kingdom to enter into rest, to get away and walk with Jesus. There is work. Watch how I do it. Apprentice me is what he says. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I think this is why I love the message translation. This phrase right here. There is so much hope in that phrase from the words, the lips of Jesus. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Who could use that in their life right now? I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So in the 6th century, an older monk, after decades of devotion to God, completed his list of recommended guidelines for communities of faith to remain steady in a hostile world, a world hostile to them personally and a world hostile to their faith. For years, Benedict of Nursia had been quietly reforming the ways of the church, 
which have begun to drift into cultural accommodation and immorality. Through seasons of living as a desert hermit to overseeing disciples in a monastery, St. Benedict gained the experience to steward both an individual belief to seeing how faith shapes a broader network of people. In fact, the rule of St. Benedict, as they became to be known, was so effective in centering the faithful on the worship of God and serving in, in community and being a witness to the culture that became the basis of other monastic movements throughout history. Now, this word rule and rule of life originates and means trellis, basically, is, is what the word trellis comes from. Consider the art and craft of growing grapes. A trellis is required for the vine to continue growing to fulfill its potential and grow healthy, fruitful into grapes. The trellis enables the grapevine to grow in maximum fruitfulness. Similarly, a rule of life can be a trellis that helps us stay connected to Jesus and grow into our maximum fruitfulness. I believe there's something both powerful and intriguing in this concept of a rule of life that is It's not a new concept, though it may be new to you. It's actually an ancient concept that's been passed down throughout church history. That as saints and would-be saints tried to put it in practice, they find over time that they can be with Jesus, they can be like Jesus, and they can do the things that he does. And that's the whole of life for an apprentice of Jesus, someone who calls himself a Christian. The goal is to be with Jesus to be like Jesus, and to do the things that he does. Ken Shigematsu, in his book called God in My Everything, says this, like a trellis, a rule of life supports and guides our growth. It supports our friendship with Christ so that we bear the fruit of his character and are able to offer his nourishing life to others. The purpose of the rule in this sense is not to be harsh or confining. Now, everybody that held your breath when I said rule, you can let it out. It's not to be harsh or confining. It's to cultivate fruit. It serves as a pattern for life that enables us to experience the presence of Jesus in every moment of our lives, empowering us to become people who embody his love to others. Now, the question is, great. It's been great for, you know, a couple hundred decades or whatever. Uh, Does a rule of life appear in the Bible? Show me it in the Bible. Well, no, it doesn't specifically get mentioned in the Bible, but yes, we can see the same approach to spiritual disciplines all throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Specifically, uh, in the life of Jesus, we see these rhythms and these practices. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. He had traditions that he inhabited, fixed our prayer, worship at the temple, Sabbath rest, fasting, all of those things combine in spiritual disciplines as a rule of life for Jesus. He, we see patterns of this emerge if we look and if we pay attention. So one example is this. In Luke 5, 15 to 16, he says this. As news, news spread about him all the more, crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often, that means he didn't do it every once in a while. He didn't do it on a whim. He didn't feel when he needed to on a beach in Cabo, he got away and got some time away. He did this often as a centering practice to maintain his connection through the Holy Spirit with his Father. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, and that word lonely can be translated desert or wilderness places. He got away from the crowds to maintain his connection with the Father and minister in the power of God as an overflow. 
not as a deficit. He was never playing catch up to give away God's love. He was always doing it as an overflow. Now we see him doing this, but then we also see him inviting his apprentices, his followers, his disciples to learn how to do the same thing for their life, to put into practice the same things that he was doing to maintain his centeredness on the Father. Mark 6, 31 says this, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. He said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Again, he, he practices, he embodies and then his disciples say, how are, you, how are you keeping up with the strenuous demands of ministry and life and all the things demanding of your time? And he says, come and do what I do, right? To be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do the things that he does is the goal of an apprentice. So we see these rhythms not just in the life of Jesus, but scattered all throughout Scripture as they are practiced by God's people. Most of us, in fact, are familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den. If you grew up in church, maybe you did the flannel graph, or you at least know he came out safely. Do you know what the precursor to that situation was? It was actually Daniel's, if we could call it such, it was his rule of life. It was his spiritual practices that he put into place and maintained that got him into trouble. Let's read Daniel 6, 3. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So I'll mention this. The rule of life doesn't exist for itself. Prayer and fasting and Sabbath, those are all means to an end, and the end is God. But the fruit of that, the fruit that we receive from the power of the Holy Spirit We see in the life of Daniel, we obviously see it in the life of Jesus, but in the life of Daniel, you see these character qualities and these competencies. He's able, in a a foreign, hostile country, to able to rise to the level of leadership that he does because he's got deep character and he's got deep wisdom and competencies. How does he get that? Well, he maintains his connection to God, even in the midst of this hostile culture. At, the t- at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his con- conduct of governmental affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, I mean, how many branches of government is gunning for this guy, right? They've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any other god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room with the windows open towards Jerusalem. He went upstairs and opened the windows inside of everyone. He said, come at me, bro. Let's do this. You're threatening me? I'm going to go talk to God. I'm going to go talk to God about this and see if I'm scared, Right? Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Just as he had done before, from all the days of his youth. Then these men went as a group, found Daniel praying, asked God for help, and and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. So this should serve, though, as a warning. Implementing a rule of life is no picnic in the park. You would better believe, if you set aside time and energy and attention to focus on God as a regular pattern, that's when hell breaks loose. I mean, it's innocuous stuff, but you better believe if you set aside time for a Sabbath, 
That's when you get the last minute phone call for someone to borrow your pickup truck. And hey, can you drive it and help me move, by the way? (laughs) I'm a good neighbor, sure, right? It's when you set aside time to fast, that's when someone in the office brings in varsity donuts. They've never done it. The five years they've worked there, that's the day when you fast. When you pray, that's when your kids start fighting. I don't know how they know. They just know. I go into my my room, have the door shut like Jesus taught. Knock, 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 knock. (laughs) Yes, what do you need? What do you need? Decide to increase your giving. Usually that's when car trouble happens. Now, I'm not talking you out of any of these things, but I want you to go in with sobriety that when you push into God, the enemy, the universe, conditions, situations, whatever you want to call it, but there are spiritual forces that will push back and invite you to remain in the status quo of apathy and lethargy in your life. You just have to be aware of it, okay? I don't want to talk you out of this. Again, I just want to help get you unstuck. And no, the moment that you try and get unstuck is when the things in your life will arrange themselves to to enable you to keep doing what's easy, comfortable, and what's already been done and tried in your life. Pete Scazzaro says this in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Rule of life, very simply, is an intentional, conscious plan. So it's a plan. It's not something you try out Try on for a week, see if it works. It's it's a plan. You have intentionality with it. To keep God as the center of everything that we do. It includes our unique combination of spiritual practices that provide structure and direction for us to pay attention to and remember God in everything we do. It's a powerful tool dating to the desert fathers and mothers in the third to fifth centuries and enables us to regulate our entire lives in such a way that we prefer the love of Jesus above all things. So allow me for a moment to give you the bigger picture of what this rule of life means for us, how you can be a part of it, and where we're going on into the future, okay? So our rule of life workbook with uh, fancy cover not included on your own, you have to do that by yourself, is, uh, is around you. So you can go ahead and grab it, you can flip through it. I know anticipation is building, you just can't wait to flip through anyway. There it is. It's our attempt to capture the habits and practices that will point our church together towards Jesus. You'll find hard copies around you and online at mosaicmhk.com slash rule of life. If you'd rather have a digital copy and keep it on your devices, that's great. That's, that's, I'll do it, you know, hard copy and write it out, but I usually will. I've done this, by the way, I should step back. Um, I first started doing a rule of life about three years ago. And uh, I've kept mine digitally so I can pull it up and I have kind of a list of things first thing in the morning that I get through, some time of solitude. And every once in a while, I'll come back to this. I think I have a schedule set where every three months, I pull my rule of life out and I go, go through it and see how these practices are, are helping me take steps towards Jesus and become a person of love. So if you want it, uh, you know, hard copy, grab that online. That's perfectly great and fine too. Uh, on our website, keep that uh, uh, page in mind, bookmark that maybe, come back to that because we're gonna continue to, to not just update it with sermons and things, but we're gonna continue to have resources, trainings, workshops, different things available to you as time goes on. It'll be kind of a one-stop shop. As you look through the workbook, you'll see a few things. First, it's meant to be intuitive enough 
that if you wanna work ahead and look at the other uh, sections of it, you're free to do so. If you just wanna take it a section of a t- as a, at a time as we go through it together, that's perfectly fine too. Um, the, the thing is you can just work on it immediately because it should have enough instruction in there for you to get going. Um, it is ultimately meant to be done in community, so there are encouragements and prompts for you to find a trusted partner or maybe even do this in a group together where you can ask each other about each other's rule of life. Okay, second, there are five categories of practices known here at Mosaic as marks of formation. So we believe that a healthy disciple of Jesus at Mosaic will demonstrate and be continuing to grow in each of these areas. They are, these five marks of formation are resting, which is pausing to enjoy God and his creation. Second, praying is a life of conversational connection with God. Third, learning, a commitment to be a wholehearted student of Jesus. Fourth is gathering, practices of relationships and hospitality. And fifth is contributing, graciously sharing as you continue on God's mission. So these form the backbone of following the way of Jesus here at Mosaic Church. You can think of it as if if someone came to you and said, what's it like to be a Christian and how do you do it? What is it that you do to be a Christian? You could say to them, quite literally, come and see for yourself. Come and practice our rule of life with us to get to know Jesus and community and be on God's mission together. At Mosaic Together, we rest, pray, learn, grow, and contribute, and we get a little better as time goes on. So as I said, we're beginning a new series through resting today. We're actually not going to get to rest specifically today. Again, I'm setting the foundation for it. For the next four weeks, we'll look at one spiritual discipline that will form a baseline practice in this mark of resting. Okay, Each each of these marks of formation have four suggested practices, so there there are 20 practices altogether. So to some, that may seem like a lot. And that's okay. We don't mean for anybody to do all of this today and do it perfectly tomorrow, unless your name is Jesus, right? The idea is this is a journey of learning and growing together in community to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do the things that he, he uh, does. So know this, there's, right now, there's no spiel on a sign on the dotted line to sign up for the rule of life. If you want to do the rule of life, then you do the rule of life. That's what it means to join in on it. And there's no pressure. If you need to dip your toe, if you're kind of skeptical and you need to dip your toe in and and maybe you come back next week and the week after that and go, I will be here and I will listen and I will look at the workbook, that's a good first step for anybody that's kind of been burned on religion. You've, You've signed your name on the dotted line. It doesn't really mean anything. We are going to prefer action over a signature on a piece of paper. You want, to, you want to be a part of Mosaic? You want to practice the way of Jesus in our rule of life? Come and do it with us. That's what you can do today, okay? Now, there's, uh, there's some, and I think you mainly go to cons of strength, who go, yes, I'm in, let's go right now. I'm going to lift this over my head. Let's go right now. I'll sign up all the rules. I'll sign them for you, right? So that's, anyway, that's great. You can go for it. You can totally go through all this Work at your own pace, which means you'll be done by the Super Bowl and be off to, to uh, doing the rule of life. That's great. Just know we're going to keep checking in on you. This isn't a fill it out and put it out on the shelf to collect dust. It's in two weeks. How's your rule of life? It's in two months. Hey, tell me about. 
Tell me about that, how you're experiencing God in Sabbath and in prayer. And in two years, how's your rule of life? Looking back over the last two years, what has been your greatest success? What has been your greatest setback? That's what it means to practice the way of Jesus together in community in a rule of life. So I do want to give you some practical direction to help you as you journey through this workbook. First, I want you to consider your personality and stage of life. Even though there are suggested baseline practices that we'll cover every week, not every iteration is going to work for everyone the same, or even for you as you enter and exit different seasons of your life. Time set aside for prayer is going to look different for a family with young kids than it does for empty nesters, and that's okay. If you're more introverted, you'll be drawn more towards contemplative practices and need to stretch more towards community. If you're extroverted, the opposite usually is true. Generosity is different when you're single than when you're married, right? When you have two jobs, no kids, that generosity looks way different. Be kind to yourself and gracious towards others as we work this out and walk this out together. Okay, secondly, include upstream and downstream practices. I'm indebted to John Mark Homer for this terminology. There will be practices that seem easier than others, I would recommend balance looks like having lots of downstream practices that you can relax into, that you find joy and contentment in. Practice those a lot in your rule of life. But then have just a couple, so quite a few, and I don't have a number for you, but have quite a few downstream and just a couple upstream practices that are challenging you towards growth. Okay, That's a good quote-unquote balance. Not really balance, but it's just how to include them. Third is build in structure and spontaneity. A rule life isn't supposed to be rigid, boring, or legalistic. Remember, it's a trellis that's point is to enable spiritual growth. Often, the Spirit will bring unscheduled interruptions into our days to prompt us to further growth. Those are the spontaneity that, you know, I, I myself count, me, count as, as a person that doesn't like much uh, Last-minute, spontaneous things, terror jokes that I have to plan, times of spontaneity to really enjoy them. So I need to follow the, the direction of the Spirit as He interrupts my day and interrupts the intentions I have for my rule. And then fourthly, approach it as a working document. Write it in pencil, figuratively or literally, if that will really help you. Because life is dynamic, your personal rule should reflect that. Try it out for a short season. I think the recommended amount is about three months. You know, you want to have enough time so you get into regular rhythms and routines, but not a, a, not a lot long enough that it's like you feel stuck and you feel like you, you can't get out of it, okay? Uh, try it out for a short season and then discern if it's helping you become a person of love and adjust as necessary. So one thing I will tell you that a rule of life is not is a quick fix solution to bringing a life that feels out of control into balance. Balance is is somewhat elusive and almost impossible to to really maintain, uh, especially for for the long haul. I find this this idea of having this balance in all areas of our life, I don't don't look at Jesus' life and go, wow, everything's really balanced for him. Um, The rule of life what it does is it offers us the chance at a centered life to live with Jesus at the center of everything 
even when it feels like everything might be falling apart or it's out of control. What you'll often find is that when you live with Christ as a sinner, there's a sorting and there's a prioritizing that begins to happen. And life feels more fully purposeful, even though it may be stuffed to the gills and you may feel out of balance. So with that, I find sometimes there are two objections that come with looking at organizing your spiritual disciplines around a rule of life and actually committing to that for a season of time. One might say, you know, wait, this seems really complicated. I don't think personal growth is really that hard. Do we really need this much structure, this much depth? Do we really need 20 practices that we try out as a church community? Uh, And I will tell you, if you believe that, there are scores of authors that will line up to sell you books about quick quick fix hacks to help your life grow and flourish and all that stuff. I just don't know if they actually work. You could you could pick up Atomic Habits. I think that's a good, there, there's a lot of good nuggets in these. Atomic Habits, the power of, of habit. Uh, I, I even think like Discipline Equals f- uh, Freedom by a former Navy SEAL that has a neck thicker than my quads. You know, it's just like, there's lots of stuff out there that will help you try and change. I just don't actually know how much of it sticks. And And I think we're all proof of like, man, I've tried lots of things. Here is, um, I want to show you two, two pictures, two graphs, two, I don't know, whatever. Um, I want to show you first what un- unintentional, I call it unintentional formation. It might be more fair to say unfocused formation, because um, I'm not trying to be uh, mean about this, but I, I think there is a, there's a way we go about this where we see content, like there's a, there's a certain level of discomfort in our lives, and we go, something has to change. We might see something that we want more than what we have. We might have a health scare or emergency, or we might just say, be fed up with our current financial situation and say, I want to change. There's lots of content out there that will help us change. There are lots of things out there that will take your money and take your attention and take your time and promise you a quick fix. Usually, it's in the form of influencers that you could scroll through and pick your du jour influencer to sell you whatever content that they have at a discount, it just so happens today, for $19.95 for 12 months, and you'll be off and running on your change. And so we make these resolutions or these goals to try these things out for 40 days or our money back or whatever it is, and usually, in the middle, what we have to work with is some hacks and our willpower to stick with it. But where does that get us? Usually, it's with the Peloton in the corner with semi-clean clothes, right? Because we're just kind of tired about with waking up early and having our coach scream at us, just pedal faster. Like That's what culture has to offer us, is just pedal harder, just pedal faster, just stick with it. Now, I want to contrast that with, well, before I do, there, there's a second, second and equally, I think, unhelpful um, way that Christians talk about change, and it's usually distilled down into reductionistic methods. You might hear it as, just preach the Bible. We need more Bible. If we read more Bible, then our lives would be better. And, and honestly, like, I'm not, who am I going to, am I going to argue against that? Like, no, I'm a pastor. Like, yes, read, read the Bible, preach the Bible. Let's get in the Word. Let's go deep. But is that really it? If, if, if it was just read the Bible with the amount of information that we have, endless amounts of commentaries and books, schools, churches on most corners, like 
is that really what it, what it takes to change? And, and I would say it's a reductionistic approach because it is one part of what it does take to change. Here is something that Dallas Willard has, has worked on. And, and actually, let me, let me quote this before we go there. John Ortberg says this in a Christianity Today article. He says, Neuroscience has shown us in concrete ways a reality of human existence that is crucial for disciples to understand in our struggle with sin. That reality is this. Mostly our behavior does not consist of a series of conscious choices. Mostly our behavior is governed by habit. Most of the time, a change of behavior requires the acquisition of new habits. Willpower and conscious decision have very little power over what we do. A habit is a relatively permanent pattern of behavior that allows you to navigate life. A capacity for habitual behavior is indispensable. So like, it's a habit. You pulling out of your driveway, that's a habit. You don't have to check your mirror and all the things when you first started driving. You've gotten into a habit. How long did you spend brushing your teeth this morning? I don't know, it's just a habit, right? It's a good habit to have. They're good habits, but they're also bad or sinful habits. People in our churches, he says, will not be transformed simply by having more exegetical or theological information poured into them, no matter how correct that information may be. The information has to be embodied, has to become habituated into attitudes, patterns of response, and reflexive action. The reason that spiritual disciplines are an important part of change is that they honor the physical nature of the human life. Catch that. It's important. Information alone doesn't override bad habits. God uses relationships, experiences, and practices to shape and reshape the character of our lives that gets embedded at the most physical level. So to underscore this, something that Christian philosopher Dallas Willard worked on was what was called the Dallas, or the, excuse me, the Golden Triangle. This has been tweaked from, uh, from, uh, by John Mark Homer a bit. This is what's known as intentional spiritual formation, the Golden Triangle. It looks the same with some significant differences. First, there is teaching involved. There is the Holy Scripture that we want to go deeper in and, and know Jesus through the Word of God. There's having a humble and contrite spirit to receive truth when it's given in whatever form it's given in, whether it be the Word. Or secondly, we need community. We need relationships in our lives that speak into our life. That we uh, uh, Spiritual formation is not project self. Spiritual formation is becoming more like Jesus for the sake of other people. And we only know how we affect other people, and we only get spoken into our blind spots through relationships. Now, community here and relationships are doing some heavy lifting because this actually might be a therapist or a counselor in here too. It's all kinds of relationships that you have in your, in your life that help you uh, grow and get unstuck, right? And then there are these practices. There are the spiritual habits, the spiritual disciplines, that are really important. That's where our rule of life comes in. We need all three of these things. We need teaching through the Word of God. We need community and relationships. And we need practices that undergird positive habits that help us to become more like Jesus. And instead of our willpower, saying that I just need to try harder this time, it's actually the Holy Spirit that gives power. Change is not something I can do or even convince you that needs to be done. Transformation is the Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit, and this is why the the mystics often talked about relaxing into the Spirit for change. It wasn't them trying hard to overcome or defeat something, although there is effort involved. It's actually receiving the change that the Holy Spirit already wants to do in our lives. Now, at the bottom you'll see there's an addition here. This is the not-so-secret secret 
of change. In our Instant Pot culture, we expect change in 40 days or our money back. We want it overnight. We want to hack minimal effort with maximum output. That's what I want. And I'm going to go everywhere and anywhere that promises me that. But we understand as Christians, time, it takes time to form. Now, God does suddenlies. He does the, the end suddenly God shows up. And I love those. But often, spiritual transformation takes time. It takes patience of walking it out. Now, the above-the-line things are the active pursuits. It's the thing that we put energy and effort into. The below-the-line thing, that's, that's the, the passive things that we, we, we receive and endure patiently over time. These are the things like trials and setbacks that both reveal our character and help change our character as well. The, hum, the human existence is one that bends towards comfort and convenience. And what pain and trials and temptations do is come along and, and, and like, a, like sandpaper, smooth down the rough edges of our lives. So we need all of these things. We need this kind of shift in mentality that says change is a lot of these things working together, and it's us again and again, both relaxing into the Spirit and when we wake up each morning, each week, each month, saying, yes, I want to follow God. I want to sign up again. In the midst of all the setbacks and heartaches and, and hard knocks of my life, God help me become more like you for the betterment of other people. So with that, um, I want to draw us to a close by envisioning a way forward together. So there's, there's, a, there's a quote that's a bit corrective and inspiring at the same time that I love, and I want it to, to help us paint a picture. Ken Shigematsu, again, in, in his book, says this, Contrary to the popular assumptions about monks and nuns, Celtic monasteries did not withdraw from society to spend time alone, isolated from the world. So, and, and here, we're not talking about us finding desert wilderness places to go spend the rest of our existence. This is about faithful presence in and among the people in our city, in our culture, okay? Isolated from the world. Instead, they built their monasteries close to settlements, on well-known hilltops or on islands near established sea lanes so they could practically demonstrate the hospitality of Christ. The Celtic monasteries were not just places of prayer and worship. They also served as hotels, emergency shelters, hospitals, libraries, universities, center for the arts, and mission-sending bases. These spiritual pilgrims were not just concerned with their own spiritual growth. They were a force for justice and community transformation. What would it look like for Mosaic Church to shift our expectations and become a kind of neo-monastic movement? To, to do this, this is what the church should be about, shouldn't it? Not cloistered away, not in our, our, our bubbles just waiting for, for Rome to burn, but actually in every workplace and every neighborhood, woven into the fabric so the gospel is in every nook and cranny so everyone has the welcome of Christ at their beck and call through believers in Jesus. What would it look like for you to be a part of that? So with that today, uh, just a next step, a simple way to put this in practice, what you can do today is read through this workbook and consider joining us in our rule of life. 
That's what you can do today. That seems pretty low stakes. I think that's pretty accessible to everyone. It's just have an open mind, have an open heart, and come back next week. It's gonna be amazing. And I don't just say that because I know who's preaching next week, although I do. It's Pastor Sarah, Sarah Siders, and she's gonna teach us on the practice of Sabbath rest. This is one that she speaks from the overflow of experience, not bunnies hopping around on hilltops and rainbows popping, but the actual trials of fighting for Sabbath rest in the midst of career and and church and relationships and kids. I think it's going to be really good for us to hear and refreshing. So with that, I want to invite the worship team up. And uh, last week, we restarted a practice uh, more regularly for us. Uh, and that's the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist, however you, you are familiar with that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to practice uh, more regularly, hopefully weekly is our goal, uh, communion, celebrating communion together. So I'm going to have the communion servers um, come on up and get ready as well. So what that looks like is that uh, here in a moment, I'll have you stand with me and then we'll come up this middle aisle and uh, Bridget and Lynn will serve communion to you. There is a gluten-free option in the middle, either if you don't like, if you don't want to tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup, you can take with the tongs the bread and and dip it in the juice, and that's completely gluten-free and and won't cause an allergic reaction to those of you who are in danger of that. Um, And so we wanna pause for a moment. Communion is, we practice it openly, which means uh, if you're in a right relationship with Jesus, and you're in a right relationship with others in the body of Christ, we would invite you to celebrate that with us. So you can go ahead and stand with me. Uh, We're going to read through the Lord's Prayer. And as we do so together, just take a moment of reflection. Um, During communion or or right before communion, this is a great time to just do a heart check, to just check in with the Holy Spirit. Ask if there's anything between you and God that needs to be dealt with or between other believers in the body of Christ. And when you feel a release, when you feel good, like it may be that you don't feel like doing communion every week is a practice you want to do just yet. That's completely fine. There's no judgment on who does or doesn't do communion. What we want to do is make sure that we're doing it with a clear heart and a clear conscience. So with that, let's go ahead and read through the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.